You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading the 58th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In the last episode, we looked at some of the fighting at Henry Hill, including how McDowell sent forward two Federal artillery batteries commanded by Ricketts and Griffin. We also talked about how Stonewall Jackson got his famous nickname. And then we wrapped up the last episode with the capture of two of Griffin's guns by the Confederates, and we said that many people consider that action the turning point of the battle. Griffin's two howitzers that had taken up a position opposite the Confederate left flank had been overrun by Southern troops led by extra Billy Smith, as well as some men of the 33rd Virginia. Private John Castler of the 33rd Virginia recalled, quote, Then came the command, Attention! Forward march, charge bayonets, double quick, and away we went, sweeping everything before us, but the enemy broke and fled. We were soon in possession of the guns, killed nearly all the horses, and a great portion of the men were killed or wounded, and we were none too soon, for one minute more and the guns would have belched forth into our ranks, carrying death and destruction, and perhaps been able to have held their position. As it was, the guns were rendered useless. We were halted, and one of my company, Thomas Furlow, who belonged to the artillery in the Mexican War, threw down his musket and said, Boys, let's turn the guns on them. That was the last sentence that ever passed his lips, for just then he was shot dead. End quote. As Private Kessler's account indicates, the Confederates had little time to celebrate their capture of the two guns before a Union counterattack by the 14th Brooklyn led by Colonel A.M. Wood, recaptured the howitzers. But then, rather than stop there, Wood decided to keep the 14th Brooklyn moving forward. As the Federal soldiers charged the left end of the Confederate line, a Southern officer rode up to Stonewall Jackson and said, General, the day is going against us. To that pessimistic report, Jackson replied, If you think so, sir, you had better not say anything about it. Jackson then rode over to the 4th Virginia and 27th Virginia to prepare them to turn back the Federal charge. The Confederate cannon and infantry greeted the 14th Brooklyn with a storm of fire, and the Northerners broke and retreated back down the Manassas-Sudley Road. At that point, Stonewall Jackson sensed that the moment had come to seize the initiative, so he ordered his men to charge, and the Confederate soldiers surged forward toward Ricketts' battery. And, after an hour of being pounded by the rebel cannon and sniped at by the southern infantry, Ricketts' guns were in no shape to repel Jackson's charge. Several of the men in the Federal battery had been killed or wounded, including Captain Ricketts himself, 
who'd been struck in the leg, and most of the battery's horses were dead or dying, their bodies littering the ground around the battered guns. Jackson had told his men, when you charge, yell like furies. And so as the Confederate soldiers surged forward toward the Federal cannon, they did just that, and for the first time on any Civil War battlefield, the so-called rebel yell was heard. Now, soldiers had probably always yelled during the chaos of battle, both to embolden themselves and to frighten the enemy. One Confederate soldier admitted, quote, I always said that if I ever went into a charge, I wouldn't holler. But the very first time I fired off my gun, I hollered as loud as I could, and I hollered every breath until we stopped. End quote. So, like I said, soldiers had probably always yelled on battlefields throughout history. But during the Civil War, the fierce, wild battle cry of the Confederate soldiers became famous as the Rebel Yell. And yet, as famous as the Rebel Yell became, no one today is exactly sure just what it sounded like. We've already recommended a couple of historian Bell Irvin Wiley's books, and Wiley has said that the Rebel Yell possessed, quote, a mixture of fright, pent-up nervousness, exultation, hatred, and a pinch of pure deviltry, end quote. Well, that's no doubt true, but it appears there was actually no one standard rebel yell. It seems it varied depending on the men raising the cheer and on the region in which they were fighting. The most common yell appears to have been a quick succession of high-pitched yelps. Another variation was described as a peculiar ape-like grunt that rose gradually into a piercing howl. Then there also seems to have been a yell that some described as resembling an Indian war cry. But whatever it sounded like, the rebel yell rattled the nerves of more than one Yankee during the war. A Union soldier shuddered to recall, quote, that terrible scream and barbarous howling, end quote. Another northerner admitted that when he heard the enemy yelling like banshees above the storm of battle, it, quote, made the hair stand up on my head. End quote. Well, but at any rate, the rebel yell was heard for the very first time here on the battlefield at Manassas as Jackson's Virginians surged toward Ricketts' battery. The Federals managed to get off a round or two of canister, but then the hard-charging Confederates overran the battery and captured Ricketts' guns. Meanwhile, to Jackson's left, the 6th North Carolina, led by Colonel Charles Fisher, had come up and they charged forward and took Griffin's howitzers from a few members of the 14th Brooklyn who hadn't fled. But then, from the cover of some nearby woods, some Federal soldiers who had reformed after their earlier retreat opened fire on the 6th North Carolina, and Colonel Fisher was killed. The rebels also came under fire from a fresh Federal regiment just arriving on the field, the 1st Michigan. That was the last straw for the North Carolinians, and they broke and fell back. That allowed the Yankees to reclaim Griffin's howitzers, which was the fourth and final time the guns changed hands, since after that, the Federals managed to remove them from the field. Just as Griffin's two howitzers changed hands several times, the six rifled guns in Ricketts' battery 
the guns Stonewall Jackson's men just overran, those cannon are also going to be much fought over. Over the next hour or so, they'll be claimed and recaptured and seized and reclaimed by both sides. In his book, A Single Grand Victory, The First Campaign and Battle of Manassas, Ethan Rafuse says, quote, The fight for Captain Ricketts' battery was not over yet. McDowell still had plenty of men available and every intention of using them to recapture his lost battery on Henry Hill, to shove the Confederate defenders off the hill, and to complete his victory. The men of the 4th and 27th Virginia were equally determined to hold on to their position around Ricketts' guns and keep their hard-won prizes, end quote. Some of y'all may remember that Griffin had left three guns in position north of the Henry House under the command of Lieutenant Charles Hazlitt, while he, Griffin, had moved those two howitzers. Well, Hazlitt managed to retreat from Henry Hill with those other cannon, so they weren't captured by the Confederates like Ricketts' six guns. Right. So, with Ricketts' guns in enemy hands, a first fumbling effort to reclaim them was made by the 1st Michigan, but they were easily driven off by the 4th Virginia and 27th Virginia. But then a more determined effort was made by two regiments of Bay Staters, the 5th Massachusetts and the 11th Massachusetts. They formed up on the Manassas-Sudley Road and then started up the western slope of Henry Hill, determined to drive the Confederates away from the captured cannon. The Massachusetts men closed on Jackson's Virginians, fired several volleys at the rebels, and then rushed forward, driving off the enemy and reclaiming Ricketts' guns. Meanwhile, on the other side of Henry Hill, P.G.T. Beauregard had been trying to organize enough Confederate units for a decisive attack. While the 4th and 27th Virginia battled around Ricketts' battery, Beauregard finally advanced over the plateau in that direction with the 5th Virginia of Stonewall Jackson's brigade and the survivors of the Hampton Legion. But by the time Beauregard arrived on the scene, the guns had been reclaimed by the two Massachusetts regiments. Seeing this, the 5th Virginia and the Legion stopped their advance, delivered a punishing volley that caused the Yankees to waver, and then Beauregard shouted to his men to use the bayonet, and the rebels charged forward. Rather than face the cold steel of the onrushing Confederates, the Massachusetts men broke and routed back down Henry Hill to the Manassas-Sudley Road. As they retreated, the Bay Staters did try to take Ricketts' guns with them, but with all of the battery's horses dead or dying, the attempt was futile. And so, for the second time, Ricketts' guns fell into Southern hands. It was also around this time that Confederate General Bernard B. was mortally wounded. As we mentioned in the last episode, B. had made his famous, Yonder stands Jackson like a stone wall, exclamation, and then he was personally leading the 4th Alabama toward the fighting around Ricketts' guns when he was shot in the abdomen. He died the next day. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. To understand the rest of the battle, it helps if you found a map of the battlefield and have been using it to follow the action. But even if you don't have a map in front of you, you can still picture the action in your mind's eye. Just picture the Manassas Sudley Road running north-south and the Warrington Turnpike running east-west. Those two roads and the point where they intersect conveniently divides this section of the battlefield into four quadrants. In the upper right, or northeast quadrant, is the Matthews House and Matthews Hill. Moving clockwise, in the lower right, or southeast quadrant, is the Henry House and Henry Hill. Across the Manassas Sedley Road from Henry Hill, in the lower left, or southwest quadrant, is Chin Ridge. And then in the upper left, or northwest quadrant, is Dogan Ridge. And you guys may remember that that's where Ricketts and Griffin's guns had originally deployed before McDowell ordered them forward to Henry Hill. But anyway, so basically, above the line of the Warrington Turnpike, you have Dogan Ridge and Matthews Hill. Below the Warrington Turnpike, you have Chin Ridge and Henry Hill. And running north-south between the ridges and hills is the Manassas Sudley Road. At this point in the battle, McDowell still had two full brigades available, those of Colonel William Tecumseh Sherman and Colonel Oliver Otis Howard, and he was determined to use those 5,000 men to full advantage. McDowell decided to send Sherman against Henry Hill while he sent Howard over to Chin Ridge. While Sherman maintained pressure on the Confederates defending Henry Hill, McDowell hoped that once Howard's brigade moved west and reached Chin Ridge, it would be in position to turn or attack the rebels' left flank. Or if the Confederates weakened their line to meet that threat to their left, then Sherman could break through at Henry Hill. That seems to have been McDowell's plan, but the Union commander wasn't the only one to understand the importance of Chin Ridge. Back at the Confederate headquarters at Portisi, Joseph E. Johnson had been sending forward reinforcements with orders to extend the Confederate line to the left, to the west. Johnston knew this would secure Stonewall Jackson's left flank on Henry Hill, and it also might give the Confederates the opportunity to turn the Federal right. Howard's brigade had just completed a 10-mile march to the scene of the action, and by the time they neared the battlefield, most of the Union soldiers were faltering badly in the brutal heat under the midday sun, so Howard would need some time to get his men into position to move on Chin Ridge. 
But Sherman's men were well rested and ready to go. So once he received McDowell's orders to attack Henry Hill, Sherman deployed his brigade and set off. He put the 13th New York in front and positioned his other three regiments behind it. They were the 2nd Wisconsin, 79th New York, and then the 69th New York. As they approached Henry Hill, Sherman sent the 13th New York off to his left. In the vicinity of the Henry House, the New Yorkers spent the next half hour exchanging fire with the still defiant remnants of the Hampton Legion. To the right of the 13th New York, Sherman sent his remaining regiments, one by one, up the slope of the hill and into the fight. By the end of the Civil War, William Tecumseh Sherman will end up second only to Grant in the hierarchy of successful Union generals, but it was here during the Manassas Campaign that Sherman had his first opportunity for field command, and during the battle, Sherman's brigade suffered more casualties than any other comparable federal unit. Sherman's decision to commit his regiments to the attack one at a time was unfortunate, but he was far from the only officer on the field to handle his command poorly. Here in the first big fight of the war, both sides were handicapped by their officers' lack of practical experience in handling large formations of troops on a battlefield. Sherman's failings on this day could fairly be chalked up to inexperience. Yet that doesn't change the fact that his poorly executed assaults on Henry Hill were paid for with the blood of his men. Sherman later recalled, quote, Before reaching the crest of this hill, the roadway was worn deep enough to afford shelter, and I kept the several regiments in it as long as possible. But when the Wisconsin 2nd was abreast of the enemy, I ordered it to leave the roadway by the left flank and to attack the enemy. This regiment ascended to the brow of the hill steadily, received the severe fire of the enemy, returned it with spirit, and advanced delivering its fire. This regiment was clothed in gray cloth, almost identical with that of the great bulk of the secession army, and when the regiment fell into confusion and retreated toward the road, there was a universal cry that they were being fired on by our own men. The regiment rallied again, passed the brow of the hill a second time, but was again repulsed in disorder. By this time, the New York 79th had closed up, and in like manner, it was ordered to cross the brow of the hill and drive the enemy from cover. It was impossible to get a good view of this ground. In it, there was one battery of artillery, which poured an incessant fire upon our advancing columns, and the ground was very irregular, with small clusters of pines affording shelter of which the enemy took good advantage. The fire of rifles and musketry was very severe. The 79th, headed by its colonel, charged across the hill, and for a short time the contest was severe. They rallied several times under fire, but finally broke and gained the cover of the hill. This left the field open to the New York 69th, Colonel Corcoran, who in his turn led his regiment over the crest, and had in full open view the ground so severely contested. The firing was very severe and the were of cannon, muskets, and rifles incessant. It was manifest the enemy was here in great force, far superior to us at that point. The 69th held the ground for some time, but finally fell back in disorder. End quote. Unlike the rest of Sherman's regiments, Colonel Corcoran's Iris 69th did not make their attack alone. They went up the slope of Henry Hill along with the 38th New York of Wilcox's brigade. 
This federal assault pushed forward and drove off the Confederates, and so the Union soldiers yet again reclaimed the disabled guns of Ricketts' battery. At this point, McDowell rode up to the top of the hill and personally congratulated Corcoran and his Irishmen on their accomplishment. To McDowell, it must have seemed as if the Confederate defensive line on Henry Hill was teetering on the brink of collapse, so all that was needed to seal the victory was for Howard's brigade to deliver the knockout punch over to the west on Chin Ridge. But if McDowell, in those moments, had visions of victory dancing in his head, they were very quickly shattered, because just as the Federal soldiers on Henry Hill were consolidating their position around Ricketts guns, Confederate reinforcements two regiments from Philip St. George Cox's brigade arrived on the scene. The 8th Virginia and 18th Virginia had been stationed over at Lewis's and Ball's fords, but about 2 p.m. orders arrived from Beauregard and they marched for Henry Hill. No sooner had the two Virginia regiments arrived at the scene of the fighting than they furiously charged the Federals around Ricketts' battery, and the 38th New York and 69th New York broke and ran back down the hill to the Manasseh Sudley Road. Having driven off the Yankees, the 8th Virginia secured the area around the Henry House, while the 18th Virginia reclaimed Ricketts' guns. After that, finding that the Sudley Road was no longer a safe haven from Confederate fire, Sherman's and Wilcox's brigades abandoned the area altogether and began falling back to the north. As Sherman's and Wilcox's shaken volunteers streamed away from Henry Hill, Major George Sykes' battalion of regulars moved into position to cover their withdrawal. And with that, Ricketts' guns had changed hands for the last time. The fight for Henry Hill was over. Having been defeated in his attempt to take Henry Hill, McDowell's sole remaining hope for victory rested with Howard's brigade, which was moving to Chin Ridge. If Howard's men could seize the ridge, then they'd be in a position to deliver a decisive blow against the western end of the Confederate line. Earlier in the day, Howard's brigade, all New Englanders from Maine and Vermont, had suffered in the oppressive heat during the long approach march from Centerville, and then once they neared the battlefield, they had halted for several hours and roasted out in the open under the brutal July sun while they awaited orders. And then once they received the order to move up, the incompetent staff officer guiding them took them on a lengthy, indirect route that doubled the distance they needed to march, and Howard's dehydrated and exhausted men dropped out all along the way. Howard later estimated that no more than half of his men actually managed to reach the battlefield. After crossing Sudley Ford, Howard's New Englanders marched south to Dogan Ridge, then across the Warrenton Turnpike, and approached Chin Ridge. During this advance, Sergeant Urban Woodbury of the 2nd Vermont suffered a wound that cost him his right arm. He later said, quote, as we came near the field, we saw the 2nd Rhode Island Regiment resting beside the road, with arms stacked. Some of their boys called to us as we passed them. We have been in and had a hack at the Rebs, and now it is your turn. At that place we left the road, which was bordered with trees, and emerged into the open field. We were soon discovered by the enemy, who opened fire upon us with solid shot, and as we advanced farther, with shell and musketry, I did not see a man of our regiment leave the ranks, though there was some ducking of heads when a shot or shell came unusually near. 
We were the extreme right of our army. We went on to the field by the right flank, marching at quick time, but as we came under a hotter fire, our pace was quickened to the double quick. We soon began to descend the hill to the Warrenton Pike, beyond which the enemy who were firing upon us was situated. While marching at double quick down the slope at Trail Arms, at the head of my company, which was next to the color guard, I was hit in the right arm, near the shoulder, by a piece of shell, which passed across my breast and whirled around and fell to the ground. In the twinkling of an eye, I was transformed from an athlete to a pensioner. End quote. As they approached Chin Ridge, Howard deployed his men in two lines. In front were the 2nd Vermont and 4th Maine, and then the 3rd Maine and 5th Maine were in the 2nd rank. Once that was settled, Howard ordered the 1st line forward to the crest of the ridge. When the 2nd Vermont and 4th Maine reached the top of the ridge, they came into view of Colonel Joseph Kershaw's 2nd South Carolina, which was posted just to the east in the Manassas Sedley Road at the bottom of Chin Ridge. There, the South Carolinians had been trading fire with Sykes' battalion of regulars, but when the New Englanders appeared up on Chin Ridge, Kershaw's men shifted their fire to this new enemy. Meanwhile, two fresh Confederate brigades were rushing to this section of the battlefield. The first of those formations was technically commanded by Colonel Arnold Elsie, but it was being led onto the battlefield by Brigadier General Edmund Kirby Smith. This brigade was the last to arrive at Manassas Junction from the Shenandoah Valley. As Elsie's three regiments came up to Portisie from the junction, Joseph E. Johnston told Smith to take them to the far left of the Confederate line and, quote, attack the right flank of the enemy, end quote. Smith and Elsie led their men toward the sound of the guns, but as they reached the battlefield, Smith was hit in the neck and toppled from his horse. Smith wasn't fatally injured, but he was out of the fight, so Elsie assumed command and led the brigade to a point just south of Chin Ridge. There, he deployed his men, with the 10th Virginia on the right, the 1st Maryland Battalion in the center, and the 3rd Tennessee to the left. 19-year-old Private Randolph McKim of the 1st Maryland Battalion recalled, quote, we had orders to cast off our knapsacks, that we might march unimpeded to the field. Leaving them in a pile by the roadside under a small guard, we were soon marching at the double quick. Our pulses beat more quickly than our feet as we passed on, the sounds of battle waxing nearer and nearer every moment. It was a severe test of endurance, for the field was six miles away, and the heat of that July day was very exhausting. The weather had been very dry, and the dust rose in clouds around us as we double-quicked on. So thick was it that I distinctly remember I could not see my file leader. We were by and by near enough to hear the rattle of musketry, and soon we began to meet the wounded coming off the field in streams, some limping along, some on stretchers borne by their comrades. Stern work was evidently right ahead of us, and it did not steady our nerves for our first battle to be told, as the wounded told us, that it was going very badly with our men at the front. At length, the dreadful six-mile double-quick march was over, and the firing line was right in front of us. Some few, very few, had dropped out exhausted. All of us were nearly spent with the heat and the dust and the killing pace, and a brief halt was made to get breath, moisten our lips from the canteens, and prepare for the charge. I remember how poor Sel Brogdon, panting and exhausted, turned to me and asked for a drink of water from my canteen. 
I had scarcely a swallow left, but he was so much worse off than I, and his appeal was so piteous that I gave him the last drop. I remember that after the first rush, when a brief pause came, some of us dashed down to a tiny little brook for a mouthful of water, only to find the water was tinged with blood. Nonetheless, not a few stooped down and lapped it up where it was the clearest. Elsie and his men were then joined by another brigade, the one commanded by Colonel Jubal Early. Early's brigade had started the day down by Blackburn's Ford, and it would have taken part in Beauregard's grand offensive, but that plan fizzled, of course. And after he moved his men to Portisie, Early was eventually told by Johnston to follow Elsie with all possible speed and assist in the attack on the Federal right. As Early was linking up with Elsie, forming up on Elsie's left, Elsie was trying to identify the men he saw up on Chin Ridge. When he suddenly caught sight of a U.S. flag at the top of the hill, he shouted, Stars and stripes! Stars and stripes! Give it to them, boys! His men and some nearby Confederate artillery then opened fire on Howard's Federals up on the ridge. As the 2nd Vermont and 4th Maine came under heavy fire, Howard rode back down to the bottom of the ridge to order his second line forward. To his dismay, he found that much of the 5th Maine had been spooked and already routed. Nevertheless, Howard managed to round up the remainder of that hapless regiment along with the 3rd Maine and led them up the ridge. When they reached the top, Howard was positioning and rearranging his force, trying to gain his men some relief from the relentless Confederate fire, but as he directed that one of his wings fall back and reform, he was astonished to see his entire line abandoning the top of the hill. Howard and some of his officers tried to stop the withdrawal, but the men from Vermont and Maine continued to fall back. As Howard's New Englanders were falling back, Elsie sent his men charging up Chin Ridge. Not encountering any opposition, Elsie's brigade reached the top of the hill and then poured a devastating fire into the dispirited Yankees still lurking nearby. And just that quickly, the withdrawal of Howard's men turned into a panicked retreat. The inexplicable collapse of Howard's brigade, coupled with Elsie's timely advance, had secured Chin Ridge for the Confederates, and it also exposed the right flank of Sykes' regulars who were still down on the Sudley Road, gamely sparring with the rebels. Interestingly, Sykes had formed his men into a square, which was a military formation that isn't going to be used very much during the Civil War, but it was just what it sounded like. A square was, a, well, a hollow square, with men facing outward on each side. The square was a military formation that was really a holdover from the Napoleonic era, when it had been used quite often to defend against cavalry charges. Anyway, once Chin Ridge fell to the enemy, Sykes was in danger of being cut off south of the Warrenton Turnpike, so he ordered his men to withdraw northward. One of Sykes' junior officers, seeing Union soldiers fleeing the field everywhere he looked, asked, What do you make of this, Major? Sykes replied, Looks very like a rout, Lieutenant. After a triumphant tour of Henry Hill, when a joyful Beauregard rode up to Chin Ridge, he exclaimed, Hail, Elsie, thou bluker of the day, referring to the Prussian field marshal, whose timely assault on Napoleon's flank helped win the day for the Allies at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Here at Manassas, the contest to see which side had the longest reach to the west had just ended, 
and it left the Confederates in complete control of the battlefield. As the Confederates began to celebrate their victory, thousands of Union soldiers streamed away from the battlefield. In his book, A Single Grand Victory, Ethan Rafuse explains that, quote, With Howard's retreat from Chin Ridge, further effort General McDowell quickly realized had become useless. Even before the extent of Howard's route was known, McDowell had sent orders to Colonel Dixon Miles at Centerville to move up two of his brigades to the Stone Bridge with an eye to having them ready should a retreat be necessary. With Howard's defeat, a sense quickly spread among McDowell's men that they could accomplish no more that day on the west side of Bull Run. Although most of the regiments were hopelessly disorganized, only in a few units was there any sign of serious panic. It seemed the men had taken the attitude of a shopkeeper on a slow day rather than that of a beaten army, deciding, as one of McDowell's staff officers put it, it was no use to do anything more, and they might as well start home. End quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Battle at Bull Run, a history of the first major campaign of the Civil War by William C. Davis. Davis's book is a bit of a classic, I guess, uh, since it's copyright 1977. Uh, but this book, uh, Battle of Bull Run, is not so strong on the tactical details of the battle itself, but it does provide a really good overview of the strategic big picture and of the events that shape the campaign that leads up to the battle here at Manassas. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. As we close, we wanted to thank everyone who's still leaving us those great five-star reviews on iTunes. Uh, Tracy and I read all those, and we're very grateful for them. And we wanted to say a special thank you to all of y'all who have said such nice things about the podcast on the UK iTunes site over the last few months. Y'all have said some wonderful things, and we really appreciate it. Right. So thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next time, we'll cover the federal retreat. We'll look at the Confederates' failure to pursue their beaten foe. And then we'll offer up some final thoughts on the battle and its importance. Uh, We hope you'll join us again for that. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.